Welcome to the PEDS-NP, Pearls of Pediatric Evidence-Based Practice. I'm Becky Carson. I'm both the host and pediatric cheerleader for all the students and providers out there who are doing their best to comprehensively know and understand how best to care for kids. Every single week, I think to myself, no, this is my favorite topic in pediatrics, and this week was no different. I love Kawasaki disease. I've cared for children in the PICU with severe coronary artery dilation, diagnosed atypical KD in the ED when a child didn't meet all of the clinical criteria, but findings suggested acute presentation, and counseled parents on the prognosis and management of recurrent Kawasaki's when their little girl presented with the same symptoms a year after her first diagnosis. We so often talk about the glory of diagnosis and the acute care PNP in me bursts with excitement to review labs and consult cardiology for IVIG and an echo, but our conversation today will be different. These children get a million dollar workup and treatment as inpatients, but eventually they go home and I want to talk about Kawasaki implications for the PCP. We know from the 2017 American Heart Association guidelines on the diagnosis, treatment, and long-term management of KD that IVIG should be given as early as possible within the first 10 days of illness onset of fever. That means as soon as the diagnosis can be established. Remember from our discussion that one of the biggest bummers in peds is when a provider doesn't recognize KD staring them in the face. This can happen in a number of scenarios where a provider mistakes a single concurrent symptom that presents with fever as another diagnosis, say fever plus cervical lymphadenopathy that gets treated as lymphadenitis. And when the antibiotics don't make it better and the child develops a polymorphous rash, it gets labeled as a drug reaction. Or maybe a fever in an infant female who gets inappropriate empiric antibiotics but then the fever persists and someone does a UA in culture, which shows sterile pyuria, so no growth on the culture, and they write it off as pretreatment antibiotics causing the culture to be negative. I know these seem like pretty extreme examples, but this is my warning to you to be observant and keep your differential diagnosis open for as long as you can, making certain that everything in the patient's presentation fits your diagnosis. I digress. Patients with a delayed diagnosis of KD, i.e. later than 10 days of fever, may still be candidates for treatment. IVIG should be administered to children presenting after the 10th day of illness, so these are the kids where the diagnosis was missed earlier, if they have ongoing systemic inflammation as shown by an elevated ESR or CRP, together with either persistent fever without other explanation or coronary artery aneurysms. Also, during the acute phase of illness, aspirin is administered every six hours with a total daily dose of 80 to 100 mg per keg per day in the United States. Here, we're using it for its important anti-inflammatory activity at high doses and antiplatelet activity at low doses. But remember that pesky old RISE syndrome? RISE syndrome occurs when a child gets salicylates while going through an active viral infection like varicella or influenza. So here's our first PCP implication for Kawasaki's. Since these patients are on aspirin for six to eight weeks after going home, and the patient has just had a hearty dose of IVIG, the PCP needs to consider which immunization a child should or shouldn't have. 
MMR and varicella immunizations should be deferred for 11 months after receiving high-dose IVIG because these are live virus vaccines. On the flip side, the PCP should make sure that all children who are six months and older and their family members should receive a seasonal influenza vaccine. Only inactivated influenza vaccines should be administered to children on aspirin therapy, which is what we're mostly using anyway, but you should just be aware of this. The American Heart Association also provided risk-stratified recommendations for long-term evaluation and management, depending on the degree of coronary involvement and other sequelae. Remember that initial treatment involves IVIG and aspirin, then long-term management begins at the end of four to six weeks after fever onset, when the acute illness has subsided, and by this time, we really expect that any coronary artery dilation that is going to evolve has likely done so by this time. I won't go in depth to each of the categories, but I wanted to draw your attention to them, particularly the one that states that if there are no echocardiographic abnormalities at a four to six week assessment, further follow-up is not cost-effective, and these patients are not at risk for new onset of abnormalities. Then there are the recommendations for the primary care provider in a systems-based approach to care. For cardiovascular risk factor assessment and management, they say that it's reasonable to provide general counseling regarding healthy lifestyle and activity promotion at every visit. And it's also reasonable to assess blood pressure, fasting lipid profile, BMI, waist circumference, dietary and activity assessment, and smoking at least once, and then ideally at least one year from the episode of acute KD. For a thromboprophylaxis, it's reasonable to give a low-dose aspirin for up to four to six weeks after the episode of acute KD, which should be discontinued thereafter. And regarding physical activity, they tell us that it is reasonable to provide physical activity counseling at every visit with no restrictions or precautions at any time. There's no evidence to support aggressive activity restrictions. But remember that there's an asterisk on that because we know that patients taking thromboprophylaxis are restricted from activities that involve a risk of bodily contact, trauma, or injury, which includes contact sports because of their increased risk of bleeding. If we can mitigate that to some degree using helmets or protective gear, participation can be considered. But there's plenty of physical activity to do that doesn't involve contact sports. I wanted to hammer home this week that the PCP is an essential player in acute care as well, because they're the medical home where subspecialists meet surrounding one patient's care, and it's their role to promote health and wellness. Kids and their parents aren't always aware of the dangers that are out there around them, and they can present looking really healthy. So it's important for primary care providers to consider how certain disease processes might affect a child once they go home from an acute hospitalization, or when chronic disease becomes an ever-present companion in a child's day-to-day life. We want children to live full and healthy lives, as great as they can with whatever their underlying conditions might be. And it's our job at the well visits and post-hospital follow-up to recognize patterns of disease or consider risks that might impair a child's pursuit of health and wellness. We can get caught up in the glitz and glamour of acutely ill children, But remember that patients need longitudinal care after discharge because every disease eventually involves long-term management. And that's the role of the primary care provider. Next, I wanna talk about something a little more common, but still quite scary, hypertension. 
I think it's really easy to miss hypertension if you're not used to taking care of kids because you can see this beautiful blood pressure of 120 over 80 and think that it looks perfect because that's a great blood pressure in an adult, but in kids, depending on their age, that could be stage two hypertension. We've seen an increased incidence in hypertension over the last several decades since the normative data that was collected in the 1960s to create our percentile charts was published. In our current era, we're seeing obesity that's around 20% and hypertension that's around 3.5% in the overall population. So it's important for us to follow our 2017 clinical practice guidelines on measuring blood pressure and hypertension. We should be starting at age three and obtaining a blood pressure yearly in children at their well child check if they're healthy. But we should be obtaining it at every visit if a child has a chronic past medical history, and that includes obesity. Ideally, in order to get an accurate measurement, the child should have five minutes of rest, their arms should be sitting at the level of their heart, and their legs should be down. We should obtain two back-to-back measurements in their dominant arm and then calculate an average to classify it. If it's elevated, you should double check it by auscultation. And then if it still is elevated, we should repeat this on two additional occasions. When we're classifying blood pressure in children under age 13, if it's under the 90th percentile, it's considered normal. We consider an elevated blood pressure between the 90th and 95th percentile. Stage one is 95th plus 12 millimeters of mercury. And then stage two goes anything beyond that. In children who are over 13 years of age, the classification is similar to that of adults. So what do you do after a patient screens positive for hypertension? Well, first, we're going to start with a really great history and physical exam. Your history is going to focus on whether there's a family history of heart disease or kidney disease. You want to know about the child's past medical history. Do they have their own history of urinary tract infections or kidney disease that could warn us for a secondary cause of their hypertension? Then you're going to do a physical exam. If they're asymptomatic, we're going to still be looking for other causes of secondary hypertension. Check their femoral pulses. Maybe they've had a coarctation of the aorta that got missed for years. Or check and see if there's tachycardia. Maybe the child has white coat syndrome. Look at their eyes and see if we're missing hyperthyroidism. In general, we want to rule out secondary causes of hypertension, the most common being renal disease in children. And then as we start to manage it, we're often looking at a comorbidity with obesity, where lifestyle changes that include diet and exercise are going to be the most effective at improving their hypertension. The DASH diet is something that's been tried and is somewhat successful in adults. It's essentially a low-fat, low-salt diet. But remember, it's not so much a diet in a child, but it's a lifestyle modification for the entire family, and it takes a little while to get used to. So I would recommend seeing them back in about three months and see how it's doing. No check of their weight at this visit. And then recheck again at six months. It's successful about 10 to 20% of the time. And if it's not successful, I think most people are often at a point where they would want to refer to cardiology. But if you're comfortable prescribing, we want to consider medications given daily that have a low side effect profile. These would be things like an ACE inhibitor, a long-acting calcium channel blocker, or a thiazide. 
We would recheck in a couple of weeks to see improvement, and then again every three to four weeks after that. As we're counseling families on hypertension, it's really important that we emphasize to them why we're doing this. I think because obesity is often a comorbid condition with primary hypertension, parents think that we're making a commentary on their child's attractiveness or their child's overall worth because weight and body image are big issues in our culture. But we want to emphasize to them that this has nothing to do with cosmetics and everything to do with end organ damage. We're worried about their heart, their kidneys, their eyes, and their neurocognitive status. Their child is a priority to us, just like it is to them. We're doing this for their kids so they can grow up healthy. I'm Becky Carson. Take care.